I'd like to say a little bit about um, the tradition that I come from because um, I think normally uh, the people who come here to give a Dharma talk and have discussions with you are people who are uh, following in the Theravadan tradition. And um, I'm a hardcore, sort of a hardcore Zen person. But the particular school of, um, of Zen that is my home path, has um, major elements of both from the Theravadan tradition and from Vajrayana. So because of that, um, I've studied with teachers in both of those traditions in order to understand the influences from those two schools in the particular school of Zen that, that I come from. Uh, and I think that uh, in in the United States and maybe through in the West, um, uh, in general, um, people who are interested in Buddhism, and interestingly, especially people who are uh, sitting regularly in a teaching seat, often um, go to study with a teacher in another tradition um, because there's a kind of balancing um, in the process of doing that. Um, What I thought I would talk about tonight is um, the cultivation of uh, of patience. Um, and then somebody said, "Well, what I'd like to hear you talk about anger and I can't remember what the other what what, what was the other feature? Should you be willing to give yourself away? <laughs> anger is good enough." Um, because, of course, there's a relationship between patience and anger. Big one. Um, but I'd like to begin by um, telling you uh, my adventures of the last four months because um, this has been a period of uh, great testing of my patience. And the, um, the prescriptions I received, both from a doctor who I saw when I took quite a bad fall in Mexico in uh, October, and uh, the doctor that I've been seeing here in Berkeley uh, to help. I tore two uh, tendons in my uh, right knee, the two that are the most important in terms of stabilizing the knee. And um, so I was advised to not be on my knee except for uh, modest amounts of walking on level surfaces and a very uh, modest regime of gradual exercises. Um, and um, so some walking, not too much standing still, and certainly not sitting cross-legged, at least not for the foreseeable future. And... Um, I have found this uh, period of, it's been about four months that I've been under this regime, and um, I had not realized uh, how easily I can slip into impatience when I'm told to lie about and read interesting books and listen to music and visit with friends who come to me and certainly uh, not drive or do anything particularly useful in, in the <laughs> usual category. So um, my drive down here today to see there was major uh, um, entry back into driving. I'm not sure I 
safe to drive because I got so distracted and excited with being out there in the swim of Highway 101. <laughs> um, the doctor that I saw in uh, in Mexico, in Oaxaca, which is where I fell and, and injured my, uh, my knee, um, we did not share a a language. I had to work with him through a, a, a translator. Um, but I have never felt read so clearly as I was by him. Um, after he examined my leg and looked at x-rays and told me what, uh, through the translator, what I needed to do, um, as we were parting, after I'd thanked him, he said, um, Yvonne, <laughs> patience kind of barked at me. <laughs> and um, in the months since uh, that communication, I have felt uh, more and more convinced that he really saw me very clearly. It was exactly uh, the, uh, the prescription that was and still is appropriate. And as I'm sure many of you know, uh, the cultivation of patience is also, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, um, seen as one of the major antidotes to the habit of anger. Um, and I'll talk about that a, a, a little bit more. But uh, first I want to say, um, interestingly, the doctor wanted me to stay in Oaxaca for a couple of months and just lie around and go see him periodically. And of course, in retrospect, having been lying around up here without the benefit of his um, scrutiny, uh, I realized he, w he was exactly right. It would have been exactly appropriate to just stay there instead of flying to Houston, having a two-hour layover, flying to San Francisco, having a day layover, flying to Juneau, Alaska to lead a retreat, Etc. Well, um, I don't I don't stop easily. And one of the most uh, useful things for me in having physical limitation has been um, being able to study the mind that I thought I knew so well. Being able to study uh, the times when I would uh, go to impatience or frustration or um, get a big, long stick and point to some project that needed to happen in the garden. Um, and very often, when I'd get too excited, of course, I would uh, backslide in terms of the healing of the tendons in the knee. So in... In many ways, I feel like this accident has been a great teaching and a great blessing. Um, I thought I knew my mind and where I needed to pay attention. And um, I think mostly that's accurate with some rather large exceptions. I've been studying and following the, trying to follow the teachings of the Buddha for 40 years. 
And um, it's very easy when you've been practicing for a long time to think that you know something, to think that you've uh, cultivated some capacity. And um, what I've come to is understanding that Waterloo awaits all of us. It just may not look the same for each of us. That uh, some obstacle will arise to reveal assumptions and expectations we have about how things are going to be and what is so about our own state of mind. And um, if we're lucky, a Dharma teacher in the form of an enemy or a source of frustration will uh, manifest. Um, And often that initial encounter will not seem like uh, something useful. But I must say in the last uh, four months of um, not only injuring my leg, but then um, falling because I got up to let the dog out in the middle of the night and caused some internal bleeding, which sent me to the hospital where I had to have four bags of plasma and um, be bossed around by the uh, hospital authorities, the doctor in particular. Um, so it's been a, a this series of events this winter. When I look back upon them, I realize that um, if I was not so practiced in stubbornness, if I was not so practiced in assuming that I know my mind thoroughly and well, rather than knowing my mind occasionally well. Um, This would not have been such a fruitful period of time. But it is proven to be extremely fruitful. Um, I've I've driven the car twice before I came down today, um, once for six miles and once for eight miles. Um, and uh, realized that maybe I could drive myself down today. I'll probably find out either tonight or tomorrow if it was such a good idea. Um, but at least I learned that uh, it would be a good idea to stop periodically and get out of the car and walk around and do some exercises and uh, lie down on the asphalt next to where the car was parked or whatever uh, offering uh, the environment um, provided. Um, and when uh, I saw the doctor this morning, he said, you did what this morning? <laughs> you weren't driven down? I said, no. Um, my husband has to work, has work he had to do today. And he, he didn't say anything. He just raised one eyebrow. And he said, well, I hope you will go back tomorrow with many breaks, many holidays from the from the um, from the driving. Now I'm telling you this because I think that um, I'm using myself as an example of what happens when we get carried away with expectations and assumptions about what we know, what we're capable of doing, what's appropriate in any given situation. Um, 
I do think that for any of us who have strong emotional habits that lead to suffering, and I think the two that are the strongest in terms of the amount of energy in them are fear and anger, and they are related. Uh, My experience is that fear is almost always in the basement underneath anger. Um, There are probably some exceptions, but often that's the case. Um, So fear and anger and then um, self-clinging, clinging to a a sense of one's own importance. Those are the uh, three pointers that come from the Buddha about what leads to suffering. And uh, my experience is that it doesn't matter how many of the Buddha's teachings I've studied, how many great practitioners I've received teachings from, um, no matter how many uh, focused meditation practices I've done over an extended period of time, there will, I've come to understand, inevitably be moments when I go out of attention when I get caught by some distraction, when I get distracted rather than in attention, am I willing to notice distraction without judging the distraction? Am I willing to see what's so without arguing with myself about how I did it less perfectly or less frequently than um, I feel that I should? Those mental um, dialogues that we learn often from the time we're very young um, are like a kind of plague when it comes to uh, studying the Buddha's teachings and seeking to be um, serious, um, serious in the sense of consistent and constant with a practice, um, that we not get discouraged and beat ourselves up when we forget to do the very thing we promised ourselves we were going to do. Um, I have uh, three study groups. Um, One group here in the Bay Area and two up in Alaska. I go up to Alaska a couple of times a year. Um, And the people in Alaska, interestingly, I have more contact with than I do with the people here in California because we talk uh, on the phone every other week. We talk for an hour, an hour and a half. And then each of the members of the two study groups in Alaska send me what we call a weather report about what's coming up for them in their lives, in their meditation practice, and with the particular uh, practice that we're all working on at the same time. So for um, a, almost a year now, we've been working with the Mindfulness Sutra and um, primarily focusing on placed attention in conjunction with a particular mindfulness practice. And um, m- most of the people in the, in the Alaska groups have chosen to do the mindfulness practice that involves going through doorways where you step over a threshold, not on it, uh, with the leg closest to the hinge side of the door. 
And um, I recently, uh, within the last few days, I received a very apologetic weather report from one of the members of one of the groups up there who was beating herself up because she couldn't remember to do the practice until she'd gone through the doorway. And I said, well, you could just back up. And she was convinced, having failed to remember the practice, it was too late. So for any of us who have that um, that record in the mind uh, around making a mistake, that it's too late to go back and do what you had set for yourself as an intention. And um, I have a, a, a piece of paper on the framed on the wall in our meditation room uh, where I live now uh, that was written by Suzuki Roshi, who was my first uh, Zen teacher. And uh, he and uh, the late Tara Tulku are really my, I consider them my two heart teachers. And on this piece of paper, uh, Suzuki Roshi wrote, do not say too late. On another wall in the meditation room is a statement from William Sean, who was the editor of the New Yorker magazine for 30 years. And when he died, um, all of the contributors to the New Yorker wrote short remembrance pieces about him. And um, I think it was John McPhee who wrote about um, Mr. Sean giving him an assignment to write an article on basketball court floors, what they were made of and how they work, etc. And um, so um, McPhee would come in to meet with Mr. Sean two or three times a week, and Mr. Sean would look at what was being presented to him, and he'd carefully pull out his editor's pencil and make notes. And then he'd give the piece of paper back to McPhee. And after a while, McPhee said, Mr. Sean, how can you possibly spend this much time with me on this piece, given that you're responsible for getting the magazine out once a week? To which um, Mr. Sean said, it takes as long as it takes. So I like the two together. I think they, they uh, at least for me, they're very helpful. And um, I found uh, during these last four months when um, I've uh, suffered from uh, thinking that I was uh, not mighty mouse, but mighty woman, that uh, falling and tearing tendons and all the rest of it was no big deal. I could just keep on. Um, I realized that uh, it was time to pay more attention to those two statements of advice from uh, Mr. Sean and from Suzuki Roshi. Um, I think that particularly for any of us who've been uh, had a meditation practice for some time, it's very easy to um, overlook where there's some opportunity for cultivation that we haven't been seeing. To be impatient with um, something that might be labeled as a mistake rather than appreciating 
what a mistake can show me about what I either don't yet know or perhaps knew but then forgot or variations on those themes. I think especially in this culture, um, many of us uh, don't see mistakes as uh, useful. But for anybody who does creative work, um, for anybody who's working in the sciences, for example, mistakes are considered uh, like gold because that's where there's some opportunity for inquiry and for cultivation. That's where there's some opportunity to develop what I haven't yet developed. Now, at the warmer or hotter end of emotional reactivity, I think the probably we would all agree that the um, hottest end is usually referred to as anger. And a cooler end of anger is impatience. Um, if I can bring attention to the causes and conditions that lead to impatience, I'm actually able then to begin to dismantle whatever habit I have at the hotter end uh, of the emotional spectrum. If I think I'm going to be able to uh, interrupt that hotter end as the starting place, I'm likely to I feel like a failure. I'm likely to feel quite discouraged. Um, so what I want to suggest uh, to all of us is that if we can, to cultivate interest and curiosity about whatever shows up and to be willing to work with what is not grand what is not uh, loaded with a lot of emotional energy, but is more at the at the at the cooler end of the of the spectrum, and to keep bringing our uh, our focus in our meditation practice, but also not just formally, informally, keep coming back to placed attention on whatever is happening in this moment. Placed attention on the sensations in the contact between the thumb and forefinger of my left hand holding this box that is part of the um, loud system. What do you call it? The PA system. There you go. Um, and I want to um, suggest that um, along with cultivating one's ability to bring attention to the moment in some specific way, that um, pay attention to when you feel like you've gotten into some sort of trouble and ask yourself, is what I'm labeling as trouble um, arising out of my having made some assumptions and having some expectations, neither of which I was aware of. It's not the assumptions and expectations we're aware of that get us into so much trouble. It's the ones we carry that we're not aware of. Um, 
someone, uh, a very dear friend of mine, we've been practicing together for 20 years. And her husband of uh, 30 years um, recently died. And um, I went and saw him when he was in the hospital uh, in Sacramento and then subsequently was in touch with him and with his wife and the people, relatives and family who were helping take care of him until he died um, on a fairly regular basis. And um, one of the things that um, this man's wife, who's, as I said, been meditating, practicing meditation now for quite a number of years, um, and has, um, how can I put it, she has a commitment to a regular meditation practice that has become uh, quite um, unshakable. She's, uh, and out of that, cultivated uh, a capacity for groundedness, even under difficult circumstances. And I would say that her husband's, um, he had a metastasized colon cancer that then spread throughout his, uh, into his stomach, into his liver, into his lungs, into his brain. And at a certain point, um, the decision was made for him to be taken home and to be uh, under the care of uh, hospice uh, people in the town where these, the, this couple uh, has been living. Um, so I went up to Sacramento when uh, this man was in the hospital uh, to see him, and he was focused on two things. He had um, o- almost a thousand poems that he had written over many years. And he wanted to organize them. He wanted me to read the best ones on the top, but he said, I'm willing for you to see the other ones, but I want you to read the top ten pages first. Those are my best poems. And um, he also did sculpture. He said, when I get home, I want to bring all the sculpture down to the ground floor of the house where I will be staying, and I want to finish all of the work I didn't finish. Now, this is a man who, according to all of the doctors involved in his care, uh, said might live a few days. And he was talking about work that might last for um, months, if not longer. So he was completely looking forward and not present with what he was experiencing. Now, part of what he was experiencing was very challenging. Intense pain that was not um, responsive to the kind of medicine he was being given for pain. Um, at a certain point, he was given an antipsychotic medicine to help him be more calm. And, of course, he became quite psychotic, which does sometimes happen. Um, and um, in that psychotic state of mind, he got 
rather violent. So there had to always be two strong people in the room with him at all times. Going through that process of his dying, which he was not paying attention to, he didn't want to die. He wanted to live. He wanted to rework and organize his poems. He wanted to finish his sculpture. He wanted to live. And he was not the least bit interested in discovering what capacities he might have for working with pain. And he certainly wasn't interested at all in uh, turning towards dying. So what I find so interesting is that, of course, his wife was his witness uh, to his struggle to turn towards what was actually happening to him. And he's, um, he's, I think it's been about two weeks since he died. And when I spoke with his wife earlier today, she had picked up that focus on what should I have done and didn't. Uh, what mistakes she regretted in the care that she was the agent for bringing to him. And yet, in the midst of being with him in his suffering, she knew exactly, she could see very clearly what was leading to his suffering. So when we spoke earlier uh, today, um, I just noticed to her that she seemed to have forgotten all the ways she knows for taking care of her body and her mind, her heart, her breath. And there was a long silence. I actually thought the phone connection had broken. She was just very silent for some while. And she said, I just forgot. And she remembered Suzuki Roshi's little piece of paper, do not say too late. And Mr. Sean's, it takes as long as it takes. I was relieved because um, I didn't want to remind her of those quotations that she's looked at for as many years as I have. I wonder um, how many of you have found yourself in a situation where you acted in a way that was based on some expectations and some assumptions that you weren't conscious of having. 
And if you've had that kind of experience, I wonder if you can go back and allow yourself to imagine, to replay the, uh, the episode, if you will. How would it have been different if I had been aware of the assumptions I was acting on? How would the circumstances have played out differently if I had been aware of the expectations I uh, took into the given situation? And what happens? What kind of blindness occurs when we take something that happens that we find difficult personally? I've said this before when I've been here. I actually say it rather often in as many different situations as I can. What I would love would be if we all wore sandwich boards that were made of mirrors. I'm, I'm struck uh, over and over again by listening to somebody tell me about some experience they've had where somebody said something to them or about them and they took it personally. I'm convinced that whatever comes out of our mouths is a a reflection of what's in our minds. And if I listen to what somebody is saying from that perspective, I can keep listening because I'm not taking what the person is saying about me as being about me. It's about what is of concern to the person who's speaking, what's up for them that they are afraid of or worried about or have some uh, difficulty with. Maybe even some projected characteristic of their own that they can only see with others. If I listen from that perspective, my heart doesn't close when I'm uh, with another person. And I think we, we live in a world where we, we need to find a way to keep our, our, our hearts open as much of the time as we possibly can. And that doesn't mean that we cease to take care of ourselves. My friend, whose husband just died, um, was asking me about um, this notion that I keep presenting about I must not ever do something for others that doesn't include taking care of myself. It's not sustainable. And she laughed a little bit uh, after I reminded her uh, of that um, view. She said, oh, how interesting. I forgot. (laughs) So part of what I'm uh, proposing is develop interest in what you forget. Develop interest in... um, if you pick up a particular practice and then you forget to do it, get really interested in what were the causes and conditions that led you to forget what you said you really wanted to do.
Um, I'm also partially as I age, but I think partially because of the physical things that um, have happened to me um, the last few months. Um, I go across the room to, to get something. I go across the room to get a fork because I haven't finished setting the table completely. I get to the drawer where the silverware is, and I ask myself, why am I here? You know, a woman wrote a book called Where Did I Put My Glasses? I identified with the book just from the title. (laughs) And what I've learned is instead of getting upset with myself because of my forgetfulness, just go back to the table and then bloop, oh, that's right, I need another fork. And I may have to say, I need another fork all the way across the room to where the forks are, but um, very often that kind of forgetfulness arises because of a level of stress in, in one's life. Um, having too many things one is trying to do in a limited amount of time. So part of what we have to do if we want our practice to be really alive is to also be kind to ourselves. I don't think we can possibly be kind to others if we can't be first be kind to ourselves. It's an act. So maybe that's um, enough to uh, invite you to uh, bring up some uh, what I call the Velcro material. Uh, what, What leads to a kind of stickiness in your mind that you're aware of? And to what degree um, is where there's some situation or encounter or relationship where you feel like there's some stickiness that do you feel uh, a want of a a meditation-based practice that might help you open up the landscape uh, that's uh, at issue? No. Oh, I thought you wanted to. Okay, I'll start with one. I find myself having to deal with situations where other people's anger are involved. And I find that in situations like that, what happens to me is that the anger communicates it to, to me. Yeah. And now I, I've got the choice of how I respond to it, but my response really is to flee rather than be present with it. And I, I wonder if you have any advice in a situation like this. this. If at all possible, I think that until we've done a lot of work with our own mind stream, spending much time with somebody who's expressing a lot of anger is risky. Kind of almost programmed reaction of fight or flight kicks in. And... um, 
there's a difference between removing oneself from the situation and flight, which is more in the realm of reactivity. Um, I had a a teacher um, who wanted me to do something with him which um, I realized uh, was not a good idea for me to accept. And um, there's a book, it's easily 30 or more years old, called When I Say No, I Feel Guilty. The title says it all. And at the back of the book, there are a number of short stories that are examples of what to what happens when you just cave in out of fear um, instead of just saying no or some version of no. And one of the uh, techniques in the book is called the broken record technique. So I used it with uh, this particular teacher. I understand that um, you want me to work on a book with you, uh, and uh, that involves going to Japan for some extended period of time, and um, I'm not available. I understand that I promised once that I would do it, and I'm not available. And I just kept saying it. Ninety-two times. And, uh, of course, what was most important was my clarity with myself about what I was available for and what I was not available for. Until I got clear, I w- wasn't able to do the, do the practice. But there was also a way in which um, being able to stay, say, firmly what I was available for and firmly what I was not available for, um, released, I, I wasn't ca- ca- uh, a captive of my own reactivity. Um, I, this is a story I've, I've told when I've uh, been here before, but it's relevant to what you're bringing up. Um, when I was uh, practicing at the San Francisco Zen Center, um, there was a, a storage container in the back of the apartment building next door to the uh, main building where there was a big uh, trunk, and I was back there getting something I needed to get. And um, a young teenager from the housing project block away came in the door, came down the st- st- uh, street and in the door coming my direction and I thought this this kid doesn't have any splendid ideas in his mind I could just see it written all over him and um, what arose was seeing in him that he was like my son And what became possible was, how 
can I re- react or respond to a young man who's about to get into trouble for both me and him? And I just went right at him, hollering at him. Don't you dare do what you're thinking about doing. I just, I was an irate mother. And he got so kind of uh, thrown off, he backed out into the street and took off running. (laughs) And I then sat down and started shaking (laughs) when I realized what I had done. Um, this was during a period of time when in the neighborhood where the Zen Center is located, um, there, there, there was a lot of street crime and muggings and all of that. And one, um, early evening, um, a fairly young, you know, maybe late teens, early twenties kid came up behind me and started to grab my purse. more complicated than I thought. I started to grab my purse and uh, he no, it wasn't my purse. He had a knife and he stuck it here under my arm and I clamped my arm down over his hand and his knife and I socked him right in the face. (laughs) What was I thinking? He took off, and I sat down on the nearest stoop, just shaking. What have I done? <laughs> but it was it was uh, you know it was a fight or flight reaction. In that case, um, it turned out okay. But it was also what I did was also in retrospect rather dangerous. Um, one never knows, you know, in those situations. I'm basically um, more inclined to fear than I am to anger. And what I found interesting is that the two emotional states seem to be quite related to each other and that too much of either leads to suffering. Um... There's a kind of blindness, both with fear and with anger. Anyway. So anybody else have something you want to bring up? Yes, please. You have to speak into the... The price is speaking into the microphone. I have uh, two things. Uh, one is when you were talking about the man who was dying. Pardon me? The man he was, who was dying. Yes. My thought was if he did pay attention to what was happening to him, he probably would lose his will to live. That's my take on that. I don't know what your comment is. Because I find it very difficult when you're in a situation you don't want to be in. It's very difficult to 
the really the central part of my practice for the last 40 years has been sitting with people while they're dying. And um, you know, we do meditations on uh, dying as kind of dress rehearsals in order to uncover where fear arises when we uh, meditate on dying in either ourselves or someone very dear to us, dying in any one of a number of ways. And I, I'm, I'm deeply grateful to the people who have uh, asked me to keep them company while they're dying. And what I've observed, not always, but very often, is that people die very much the way they've lived. That the, the characteristics of their lives will be the characteristics in the way they um, are with the process of um, of dying, and we live in this culture um, with so little, especially in in, in this century, and really ever since we first started having hospitals in the in this country, we've lost touch with the direct experience of both birth and death. Um, and what I observed with this man who uh, I was just talking about earlier was that there was a kind of clinging. He was hanging on. And um, I'm struck in reading the commentaries on the various sutras, various teachings of the Buddha, and how frequently clinging is pointed out as a source of suffering. There's a big difference between this and this. So, I also know that um, until one is ready to sit with somebody while they're dying, one is not ready. And it's, it's not, that's where, you know, asking myself, is what I'm about to do including taking care of myself or instead of taking care of myself? And um, we're not always ready to move into what our lives present us with. But it is true that if we have a body, if we have been born, we will die. And we in this culture um, have turned away from dying, by and large. It's interesting that this is uh, coming up. Uh, as I was driving down here um, this morning, I remembered a, um, a young woman who um, had a, a stomach tumor, and she uh, she was married to the manager of a quite famous rock and roll band in the '60s, and um, 
she went to see her doctor, and her doctor was very honest with her that uh, there was nothing that could be done about the tumor and that uh, she would die pretty soon. And he recommended that she go home and say goodbye to her husband and her son and, uh, and get herself ready to die. So she went home, and she uh, sent her uh, husband and son to go be with other members of the family. She gave all her clothes and the things that were most precious to her away to her friends. And uh, she had rented a room in her house to a midwife. And um, the midwife and I were the two people. I just happened to come by to see how she was doing. And it ended up staying with her. The midwife and I, oops, what did I just do? I guess it's all right. Um, the midwife and I sat on either side of uh, this woman and followed her breathing with her, followed her exhalations with her. And um, she was initially quite in quite a bit of pain and quite frightened. But as we started making uh, the sound of ah on the exhalation, um, her exhalations began to get a little bit longer and she began to be more and more calm. And um, she died, actually, with great ease. As she died with a lot of the characteristics that I remember from when my first teacher died. I took care of him while he was dying. And he really showed me how it's possible to be with our own dying. And this woman, who was a very unlikely candidate for such a passing, um, gave everything that she'd been hanging on to away and settled onto her exhalations. For some reason, uh, remembering um, that she died in March, and I can remember looking out the window at the blossoms on the fruit tree just showing uh, as she was dying. So she comes up for me particularly uh, at this time of the year. And uh, being, you know, in an, in an area where we have fruit trees that are beginning to blossom out, uh, the association with her dying is, is very close for me. Um, but there was such a sweetness in her passing because she had come to a point where there was no longer anything she was holding on to or that she was afraid of. Now, we can't, I don't think there's any way of having a guarantee about what my state of mind will be when it comes time for me to die. Um, I've had a couple of dress rehearsals that looked more serious than dress rehearsals that have been quite informative, but one doesn't know. But I do, I do find that um, having a regular meditation practice where I'm primarily focusing on, on head, heart, belly, aligned, and the breath um, becomes a resource when I find myself in a situation where I think uh, 
I'm in trouble. I don't know how to relate to what's going on around me. And those situations come up, I think, for all of us somehow or another. And how often do we welcome those situations? I think it depends. It depends a lot a lot on different circumstances. And I have a second point. Yeah, please. Um, about impatience. Uh, I just had a talk, with, well, a week ago. I had a talk with my aunt and uncle. And they were worried about their daughter. And so we were just talking, spent you know, a long time. Everything they said, I heard exactly the same thing a year ago. Mm. And I became impatient. Mm. I think because I felt so powerless, mm. I felt I could see where, why they were stuck. Yeah. And I felt I was stuck because I couldn't help them. And I was trying to help them, but they're, they're stuck. And I just felt they're making the situation worse and they're suffering. And I don't know how to deal with it. And I, I, I just want to leave. I didn't want to, you know, stay any longer. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty convinced that I can't mind anybody else's mind stream. The only mind I can mind is my own mind. And if I get reactive with somebody else who's reactive, then we have a little group of reactives reinforcing reactivity. Uh, but I think that when we're, you know, being in a situation like that with people you care about, where you can see the consequences of impatience, is challenging. Um, some of us are very quick to want to give advice, especially when we're not right in the middle of some difficult situation. Um, but I also wonder, if I give advice that hasn't been asked for, am I in a way um, stealing? I'm stealing the other person's mind and what they're struggling with as though it were my own. Um, even offering advice can be a little bit uh, tricky. <laughs> because, of course, I may say to somebody, um, I, I have some advice I'd like to give you about your relationship with your daughter. And the parents may not want me to tell them what I see, but they may feel obliged since I've offered. So the situation you're describing sounds challenging. Uh, what I meant not about giving advice, just seeing them suffering, and I didn't want to be in that situation. No, yeah. I just... So to what degree was the suffering you saw on their part that had, it sounds like that became your suffering. Well, I, I think it takes training to be able to be in the midst of the suffering of the world. I think it takes practice. And my experience is it's better to start with very small doses. If we start with too big a dose, the dose is likely to be fatal. 
it's too easy to get discouraged. Anybody else have some cheery thought you'd like to bring up or a situation you'd like to bring up? Yes. And speak into the top of the ice cream cone. One, two, three. There you go. I'm uh, referring back to your suggested, or the perspective that you take when you're listening to someone Mm -hmm. uh, who may be directing something unpleasant at you. Could be pleasant, I guess. But you're, you're saying you try to have the perspective that they are basically talking about their own state, their own inner state. Whatever they're saying is not so much about you, but about them. Uh, I really like that idea. That's sort of what we call projection, isn't it? It's assuming that they're projecting. No. No? No. What I mean to suggest is that whatever I say is in large measure a reflection of what's arising in my mind. No matter what the topic is, I'm bringing up what is of concern in my mind stream. Whether I express it in terms of you always and you never and you, 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 or not, I can hear what somebody is saying from that perspective. And it, and when I do that, I don't take what the person is saying personally. It's not about me. And I can respond from that perspective of hearing what is upsetting to that person, what is of concern to that person, what they're anticipating with fear and dread, whatever the situation may be. But I have a wider range of options than I do if I take whatever the world says to me as being about me. Does that is that maybe a little bit more clear? Yes, it's very helpful. I, I think somewhere behind that I was thinking if, if even if I'm trying to take what I'm hearing with compassion, um, uh, it, it still can lead to be be kind of keeping the person at a distance, keeping an emotional distance, because I'm, in a sense, protecting myself, and I'm saying, well, that's about, that's about her. That's about him. It's not so but much about I'm him. not suggesting um, what I'm saying as a way of protecting myself. I'm suggesting that this is actually what's going on. So I don't need to take what somebody is saying as being all about me. I mean, I think that part of what happens is that we can get very caught up in whatever is going on in the world is all about me. We can practice that kind of self-centeredness. I am an incorrigible eavesdropper. The, uh, the last time my husband and I uh, went on a vacation, we were out for having breakfast. And at a certain point, I could tell there was this kind of glazed look in my husband's face. And I said, Bill, what's going on? And he said, well, you left me a little while ago and joined the conversation at the table behind me. <laughs> but... Um, I've learned an enormous amount listening to people on buses and in cafes have conversations about 
one thing and another. Um, and I'm, I'm very interested in the language we use when we get caught in that kind of self-centeredness that leads to suffering. I, I'm, uh, I'm in the midst of working on a book about language practices and um, the possibility of studying the mind by studying what we say and what we, the language we use in our thoughts. It's not always a thrill, but it's fascinating. Really fascinating. This whole territory of how it's possible to train the mind by the language we choose to use rather than the language we have been conditioned to use. Thank you all very much. It's been nice to spend the evening with you. Keep us keep keep ourselves off the streets and out of trouble for a little while. Take good care of yourselves and uh, thank you very much for our time together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.